0: Welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Episode number 26 already, over a quarter of a
1: century old. Yeah, and we've done 24 hours of podcasting now, guys, so
0: if you want to spend the whole day listening to us, you can. <laughs> you did point that out to me the other day that someone could actually start listening at midnight one day, and now we'd be going until 2am the following day now, wouldn't we? God, so. I don't know who'd want to do that. <laughs> if anyone would like to attempt that world record, um, Ravi will buy your pint. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, if you're new to the show, we come out every single Friday. You can download it from our website, theretrohour.com. We're on all the big podcast clients as well, iTunes, Stitcher, we can put it on YouTube every week.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's a... Oh, Stitcher, there's tons, uh, what is it, all the little apps that you can get for your phone as well. We're
0: on all of them. Too many. Can't name them all. Uh, However, if you do have a favourite podcast client that we're not on just yet, then of course do let us know and we'll try our best to get on there. I think Google Music is finally launching their podcast service in the UK in the summer. Didn't you get it on... Amiga as well. Oh, I've got it on Amicast, on the Amiga, Amicast. yeah. If anyone needs instructions, I can, uh, <laughs> I can link them up. <laughs> so every Friday the show comes out, Ravi and I recap all the retro gaming stories of the week and then, in the second half of the show, we hand over to a guest who is either influential or... Very inspirational to us. Someone who's got a big history in the world of video games, and someone who had, you know, did something really worthwhile in the past, or maybe still going today, like this lady who we've got on. Yeah, Rebecca Berger Heinemann. She has worked throughout the video
1: industry since she was fourteen. She managed to sneak in there, mm-hmm. and she's worked for Sony, Amazon, Bloomberg, Ubisoft, uh, EA. She co-founded
0: the Interplay Productions, and she's the lady behind stuff like how she did the Another World port to the Super Nintendo, yeah, in right. the 3DO, and you know she's got. Um, I think her career started when she won a National Space Invaders tournament in yeah. 1980. So yeah, she
1: did Bard's Tale as well, and Tall Tales in Tastown
0: as yeah, well. Which so is, you've seen well, it all, yeah,
1: definitely. <laughs> so and the,
0: up to the Connect. Yeah. She, she's been working with well, I was looking at a website before, doing stuff on the PS4 at the moment and stuff. So, yeah. you know, it's a career that spans more than 30 years. That's incredible, isn't it? In this Definitely. Industry. So, uh, Rebecca will be on the show in around half an hour from now. Before that, though, let's get into this week's big stories in the world of retro. Now, the first one is actually um, a friend of ours who's had contact with a star now uh, we did mention on the show over the last couple of weeks um naz the rapper had a rob the robot and a Nes in his room uh. yeah calvin harris there was a uh, kanye as well talking about amiga yeah so now our friend aaron white who is part of the rgds podcast and uh, aaron's a top lad we we got drunk with them in blackpool after play didn't we yeah totally he's uh, been reconverting
1: amiga tunes so he's kind of been getting modern stuff sampling it with an old sampler shoving <laughs> it onto mod format and floppy disk release for the geeks. And he's been transposing Commodore 64 tunes as well. So kind of by ear listening to it and then just doing inputting
0: it well. the notes. Yeah. So he's had contact with, um, maybe not the coolest guy in rap music. However, he's been going a long time. Shaggy, it wasn't me. Mr. Bombastic. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us what's happened here then. Well, he's done this
1: latest tune... Uh, Shaggy featuring Jovi Rockwell, I got you. I haven't heard the tune All right, personally. I'll, I'll be
0: honest, I didn't know Shaggy was still making music, to be fair. But,
1: but checked it, it's a 2016 tune, he just put it out, and mm-hmm. uh, he put it out on this Amiga disc and kind of tweeted it. Now, Shaggy's producer mm-hmm. actually tweeted back, this is really cool, man, and uh, he started having a conversation with him, and I think Shaggy's producer couldn't believe that it actually fit on like less than one megabyte. It's it on a floppy disk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. So he's created an MP3 of it, but not even that. He's created a full video of it on ProTracker. And the producer said, I'm going to make sure Shaggy sees this and play it to him personally because I think it's really cool. So the Shagster.
0: Might be uh, <laughs> looking on eBay for an Amiga 1200 there. <laughs> might be sitting
1: there watching <laughs> ProTracker videos. <laughs> Do you want to hear a bit of it then? Yeah, oh, go, there you go for yeah,
2: it.
0: James Brown sample in it. You can
1: really uh, tell the 8-bit sampling there, can't you?
0: But like you said, I mean, I'm impressed that he fit all of these samples onto a floppy disk. Because there's a lot of samples going on there.
1: Yeah, he's got a lot of skill. He's been also doing a lot of sample ripping, so kind of games Mm -hmm. uh, with mods built in. He's been using various tools from demo groups and stuff to rip out the protection and extract the mods from certain tunes. Oh, wow. Yeah, check out his stuff. It's uh, really good. Um, On Gaming Corners as well, or just look for RGDS. I'm sure there's all these RGDS releases coming out at the moment.
0: Well, I downloaded that, and um, it actually comes on a bootable Amiga floppy disk. You put it in, he's got, like, a nice um intro screen there. Yeah, like, I just downloaded
1: it, double-clicked it, Amiga forever, opened yeah. it up, and
0: then shaggy. <laughs> so <laughs> was we'll, stick a link, we'll stick a link in the show notes at the theretro.com if you want to get your shaggy on this weekend.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was speaking to him, and he said his mind was blown. He, he would never think of this happening as a kid. Yeah. You what? know, like... Mr. Bombastic and he's
0: listening to your Amiga tune in 2016 it's nuts I mean I know we've been you know ripping Shaggy a bit but let's be honest he's, he's a guy that's been in the industry for like 25 30 odd years now yeah he's, he's like, massive he's yeah. massive and uh,
1: he's kind of uh, a bit better than Shabba Ranks and stuff <laughs> Yeah, you know global kind of profile he's much more well known
0: isn't he oh, in dude, america like, and stuff and it wasn't me you know that song yeah, yeah. summer 2001 iron apple <sighs> yeah wouldn't say much more about that holiday but you know we, we are a family friendly <laughs> podcast that's it <laughs> so we'll pop links to the uh, the adf file if you want to download it at the dot now uh, this is sad the end of an era a gaming show on tv has come to an end I saw a bit of it,
1: actually, and I found it incredibly boring. Okay, (laughs) this is Video Game Nation. Yeah, I thought this was going to be a really cool kind of, you know, revival and a a cool kind of new Games Master or Mm -hmm. something like this, but it was pretty dry from what I saw. It was on Challenge
0: TV. Yeah, I mean, I think that was problem number one, probably. (laughs) It's on Challenge TV. Second one, it's on half past ten on a Saturday morning, which uh, I'll be honest you know. As a guy that hasn't got kids and anything like that and doesn't work Saturday mornings, I'm very rarely awake before uh, any yeah. day on a Saturday.
1: And I don't know if it was aimed at kids. It may,
0: may it seemed to be aimed at the older crowd. you know. Yeah, well, there's this article here on um, denofgeek.com, and they kind of do a little retrospective on this and then also um, other old-school gaming shows like uh, you know, Games Master and um, When Games Attack and stuff like that they talk about too. I have seen a few clips of Video Game Nation on YouTube looking at it, but um, it kind of reminded me, me a bit from what I've seen as like kind of like a gaming version of The Gadget Show. It was a bit like... Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? kind of a, a cheap rip-off.
1: But um, it's it's sad to see that going, though. Um, you know, it's good to have a regular gaming one, but the change is that there's a new gaming channel coming on Freeview, which is going to be eSports. So we're going to have the first eSports on Freeview and Sky, which is going to be... Uh, Twenty-four hour wow. <laughs> gaming TV, so. like a live Twitch
0: kind of stream. There, well, pretty yeah, much. yeah, yeah,
1: kind of League of Legends tournaments mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So it'll be the first gaming channel in the UK.
0: So as this show goes, a whole channel arrives. I mean, if you look back at Games Master and that, though, I mean, essentially, a good fifty percent of that show was what you'd probably define today as esports, wasn't it? It was yeah, competitive yeah, it was gaming, wasn't competitive it? playing together. And the thing about that Games Master as well was when
1: they dropped Games Master, it was making massive amount of viewing figures Uh, the viewing figures Hollyoaks which replaced it have never hit Mm -hmm. (laughs) so you know they they dropped it when it was successful yeah Uh, I don't think this video game nation
0: (laughs) has that kind (laughs) of uh you know but then i mean uh, y- you mentioned about this new channel coming as well and i've got to admit you know i'm not massively into like league of legends and stuff like that but if i'm at home and you know i've got my ps4 on i'll often open the twitch app and just you know if there is an esports tournament on i'll put it on while i'm tidying up or whatever yeah i
1: guess i'll have the major ones as well on there you know so it, it depends
0: who they have rights with and stuff yeah so 24 hours is quite a lot to fill though isn't it <laughs> so that'll be quite interesting to see so uh, do you know when that's going to launch uh, no, I just saw a little article about it. I oh, think okay. it's coming out soon. All yeah. right, well, we'll keep you up to date yeah. as we hear more. Now, I didn't expect to be saying this. A Sega game for the Dreamcast has been found. Yeah,
1: and this isn't one of your homebrews. This is a, an official Sega project, and a, a big prototype one. that came out in 2001. And it is Echo the Dolphin,
0: which is amazing. <laughs> now, Sega obviously discontinued the Dreamcast back in 2001. And apparently, they were making um, it was this game that was called Echo Two: Sentinels of the Universe. So this was going to be a game for the Dreamcast. Now there is a video of it on it, Ars Technica, and it's a prototype. So it's kind of got all of this like debugging code and stuff around it as well. Mm. And there are like yeah, a lot there's of kind of property. like frames per second counter and stuff already in there. Yeah, yeah. they probably get to certain bits of the map, and it's like error property not found and stuff like <laughs> yeah. that flashing up. But I've got to say, I mean, uh, you know, I always thought the Dreamcast was quite. Quite a nice platform graphically, but looking at the gameplay of this, it looks like a really rich environment. In fact, a lot of the um, the environments that you swim through, it reminds me a bit of Mist.
1: Mm, I, I thought, you know, if if they'd actually launched this, because mm. they had some nice Sonic ones as well. But if they'd launched this as one of the launch titles, I reckon it would have been really successful.
0: It looks quite it open looks world nice. as well. You can, you know, you can swim through the ocean, jump out, and even these kind of games are where you can just explore these massive yeah. maps. So it's. Uh, well, um, they've released it
1: and they've compiled it into a CDI image. CDI, which is used for the Dreamcast, so you can boot it. You can boot it. It's self-booting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't need a boot disc or anything like that, and just burn it with Image Burn and the CDI drivers, mm-hmm. which you can find
0: online. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. several websites for those, yeah. there? But I think uh, you know the Dream the Dreamcast. Obviously, on most of them, you can download and play any game on it due to their. Uh, their copy protection was kinda of broken quite early, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. But um then there was a kind of
1: whole conversion of booting game. So mm-hmm. you needed to have this boot disc to get stuff to go because it was this weird format gd-rom
0: yeah wasn't it based on like the audio cd format or something i think it was based yeah on? yeah it's i like... think that's how they got around it because if you put like a pirated game in i think it kind of fools the Dreamcast into thinking it's an audio disc first yeah and, then and, yeah, and you code. can
1: kind of overburn on the discs as well so you know these gd-roms are a little bit bigger mm-hmm. and you can overburn on the older discs yeah a lot know? of like <laughs>
0: 850 megs or something, yeah, aren't they? Yeah. But, i mean echo the dolphin i remember when that game first came out on the mega drive and I, my friend Martin at school had a Mega Drive, and he got Echo. I think he rented it out from, like, a, I think it was either before Blockbuster Ritz video game store or whatever they were, <laughs> or video shop or whatever. Um, and I remember us playing it, and I was never really all that like, into Echo the Dolphin, but I think it reminded me a bit of, you know, James Pond on the Amiga, the first one, gameplay-wise, kind of swimming through the ocean and that. Yeah, yeah.
1: It was, it was quite good, because it was, like, a massive cult hit, mm. and
0: uh, it
1: was it was, like... Why? <laughs> you know, I never, I never got it. I never got the gameplay. But lots of people seem to like Echo, and it was a big name, much bigger than Zool or something like that. Oh, it was
0: a beautiful game as well, graphically. I think that's what impressed me most about it. Yeah, that it was really nice. And I think
1: and- they've actually lived up to this uh, beauty, bringing it into three D here.
0: Well, yeah, well, exactly. I mean, it's uh, the one thing about this is this game was developed just after. I think it was like, literally a couple of days. Uh, the last build on this has got a couple of days just before the Dreamcast cancellation announcement was made. So it was probably the final project that Sega were working on for the console. And unlike a lot of other Dreamcast projects are cancelled, it didn't actually end up on any other platform. So this just got canned. Damn. So, which is I bet sad. there's
1: so many good games out there that are just gathering dust and have been canned or a
0: prototype mode still. It's cool to find them 15 years later, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. mad. If you want to play this, uh, there are free download links. You can burn it to uh, a CD and play it on your Dreamcast. We'll pop all the links to that in the show notes at theretrohour.com. This Atari movie that we mentioned the other week.
1: Yeah, it's not doing so well on the Kickstarter.
0: You know, they've got 25 days left, I think. Yeah, well, at the time of recording this, it's 24, so uh, obviously the show comes out on a Friday, so it'll be 22 days at the time the show comes out. And uh, we did mention... This documentary, I mean, if you listen to, I think, last week's show or the show before we mentioned it, and it really is a labour of love from a group of guys that want to get the story out there of Atari. Now, it's got Bill Hurd, um, who narrated the Growing the 8 Generation documentary. and It's actually the same group of guys who are behind yeah, this. So. It's called Easy to Learn, Hard to Master, The Fate of Atari. They want to tell a story in 100 minutes of uh, essentially the untold story of Atari, isn't it, from the people that were involved in this. And I'm quite surprised that, I don't know whether it's just it hasn't been publicised enough, yeah, of course. They've reached. They're about halfway there at the moment. They've got nine thousand one hundred and sixty-five euros at the time of recording this. But with twenty-two days, they need to get over twenty thousand for this film to come out. And
1: I really want to see this guy. So please, if if you can spread it, even if you can't donate, just spread it and get as many people knowing as possible. Because this story is massive, the Atari one. And I'm yeah, I am really shocked. Why is
0: it not being uh, pushed that much? The only thing i think of is, you know, we've posted it on uh, our Facebook page um, today and that I've seen a couple of people go, oh, I would not even heard about this and yeah. there's only uh, 20 days left. I think it might just be a case of that. So again, yeah, you know, if, you, if you've got friends at love Atari or, I mean, we always like, we rag on Atari a bit in like a jokey way because, you know, we, we grew up with Amigas, but it's always been, you know, it's one of the most legendary companies in the history of video games. And Slowly. we want to hear this story. Yeah, yeah, totally. I want to hear all the ups and downs. Absolutely so. I love uh, the drama. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was a lot of it at Atari as well, and like, you know, the people in here that have never told their story before. So it'll be, you know, Nolan Bushnell's obviously in it as well, and uh, by the looks of it, it goes all the way up to like the Jaguar period as well, so I'm sure there's a few, uh, you know, as you mentioned drama, I'm sure there's a lot of it around that time. Well, you know, $20 as well.
1: you get a download of it mm-hmm. and $20. What's that? £10?
0: Yeah, about 12, 13. Mm. Yeah, no, not much no, at all. I mean. Nothing at all. Spend that and around in my local pub. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's quite, <laughs> Two a, posh, pints, quite mate. a posh pub. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you want to back this, we implore you, anyone that has a passion for video games, which we you know, hope anyone that listens to this show would. Uh, the links will be on the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, do you remember all this um, kicking off years ago when originally the PS3, you could boot a Linux distribution on it, do you remember?
1: Yeah, and I thought this was great. I thought this was a kind of, you know, a thing where these home devices would be opened up and people would be able to add in mods and then they just shut it down and did completely the opposite, closed the whole system off and said, we don't want it
0: open. Well, I remember a lot of the... uh You know, Amiga OS 4, that runs on PowerPC, and I think the PS3's got a cell processor, which is kind of part of the power range. And a lot of them were like, oh, you know, put Amiga OS to it, you know. which um, at one time there was a lot of people saying, oh, that's bound to happen. But then uh, it was quite a while ago now. I didn't realise it had been this long. 2010, six years ago, they released that firmware update that blocked the Linux distributions on it. Now, a few people were quite peed off at that move, weren't
1: they? I remember speaking to RJ, and he actually, RJ Michael from Google, and he... Develop the PlayStation 2, helped work on that team. Um, he really liked the idea of having the OS in there. So I think he was a bit miffed as mm-hmm. well when it got taken out.
0: Well, I remember reading stories of people having, like, clusters of PS3s and, like, using them as, like, you know, combined computers, basically. Bitcoin with... miners or something, yeah. Well, they are pretty powerful for the day, you know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah. with a with GPU and stuff in there as well. And uh, a few people were that annoyed that they'd actually gone out and bought a PS3 Specifically for this and took Sony to court over it. Was it Yellow Dog Linux? I remember. Uh, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, running. it was. Yeah. yeah. And you downloaded it to a DVD and you could, you know, just yeah. install it on the hard disk. So a few people that actually went out <laughs> to buy this have done this. It must have been quite a long lasting litigation. Six years this has been going through the courts. Wow. And finally, there's been a settlement. So Sony and its lawyers could be paying out to as many as 10 million console owners. So what they've got to do is, (laughs) anyone that apparently bought a PS3, specifically to run Linux on it, could be eligible to receive $55 from Sony. So how do you actually
1: prove that you did it? Because you could say, oh, I tried to install Linux, and then it didn't work because of the firmware, so Mm -hmm. I just played games. Is there like... Did you have to have just tried to install
0: Linux and left it alone? (laughs) Well, it says here... (laughs) Apparently, this still needs a judge's signature on it yet, but this is what the settlement says so far. So, to get the $55, a gamer must attest under oath to their purchase of the product and installation of Linux, (laughs) provide proof of purchase or a serial number and a PlayStation Network sign-in ID, and then, it doesn't say how, they have to submit some proof of their use of the other OS functionality. Oh my god! So like, I, how many people do you
1: think are gonna do this claim? Like a tiny amount.
0: Well, how do you do that? Do you like well no, if you took a picture of maybe your PS3 running Linux in 2010? How are you gonna prove or it? Or hosted
1: a website? I, was like, I don't
0: know. Yeah, it's I really... guess if you had maybe a PS3 that was kind of bricked or something, or or maybe if you'd
1: registered with a Linux distro or something.
0: Yeah, maybe. I reckon there are going to be a few people try, trying it on with Sony, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, there could be a guy that buys up loads of them. I swear on that these 500 machines were so, dedicated uh, farmers.
0: No, $55, though, not, not to be sniffed at. No. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you want to find out how you can get your cash from Sony, apparently they're going to be emailing everyone on the PSN email list. That's oh. part of the litigation, so wow. look out for the email in your inbox soon. <laughs> Now, Nintendo's a company that we uh, we do cover from time to time, even though obviously they are still a, a modern company and they're kind of relevant in the world of modern gaming. Yep. And the fact that they've been in the industry for such a long time, I think it's always quite interesting to keep tabs on what they're up to today. Now, did you watch any of 3 in the last couple of weeks?
1: Yeah, well, I've started to see stuff about the new Zelda game and quite a lot of my friends are kind of split. Half of them are saying, this looks awful and half are saying, it's great. <laughs> Because, you know, the thing with Zelda is it always changes every game. Yeah. And this one hasn't changed much, so I think it's annoyed if you were the Zelda hardcore.
0: And the fact that that was really the only thing they properly announced, you know, for the Wii U um E3. However, of course, the next console, the NX, um, is meant to be out before the end of this year. They're kind of estimating now. Oh, that soon. The, well, I'd heard rumours that maybe before Christmas this year. Yeah? Oh, wow. So uh, Wii U okay. development may be kind of winding down. Uh, but there's a guy called um, Reggie fils May who's been at N- Nintendo for years and um, at E3 this year, uh, Bloomberg did an interview with him and okay. they asked him a few questions about um, how the NX compares to the uh, you know, the new PS4 Nemo and the uh, Xbox Scorpion. Um, asking him kind of, does it matter that the hardware's not up to spec you know, compared to the new consoles? And this is what he had to say. Have a listen to this.
2: So now you know uh, your competitors uh, 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 you know, talked about their forthcoming, the Xbox and a new PlayStation. How do you think the NX console will stack up to them? You know, for us, it's not about specs, it's not about teraflops, it's not about the horse power of a particular system. For us, it's about the content. Nintendo is a content-focused company. We create entertainment that makes people smile. So for us, we're focused on bringing our best entertainment to both the Wii U as well as the NX in the future. So for us whatever microsoft and sony are doing in terms of talking about new systems that's for them to fight out in that red ocean for us we want to make sure we're bringing our best content forward and right now the reaction to zelda has been uh, has been more than we could have ever imagined so that's what he said um talking about the nx
0: essentially saying compared to the new ps4 and the uh, the xbox they're not going to be on the same playing field
1: i think they've took a different direction
0: and well, you say that
1: they've got to stick to it.
0: Let me play you a clip that Forbes um, from a Forbes interview with the same guy back in 2013. <laughs> okay, let's see when the Wii U first got announced.
2: So Nintendo launches the Wii U. It's your first high definition console. It's very high powered. Now, you know, six months to a year later, when the ne- when your competitors' products come out, specs wise, they show up a lot faster, a lot more memory. Like when you look at the numbers, they come out far ahead. How big a problem is that of, well, we got out there first, so now our product looks maybe a little dated in comparison? You know, the, the processing, processing power of the hardware really doesn't matter. And I say that with confidence looking at the most recent generation of home consoles where the Wii, which you know, the, the broad industry looked at and said, boy, this seems to be underpowered, but sold 100 million units globally. And the consumer saw the innovation of the Wii Remote and the active gameplay we offered. Even if you look at the generation before that, it was Sony's product that was underpowered compared to the other two home consoles, and yet they won that generation. So in the end, it comes down to the games. And again, we feel very good about the games we have, not only from a first-party perspective, but from a third-party as well.
0: So that was when the uh, Wii U had just come out, around the time that the Xbox One and PS4 got announced. Essentially said the same thing three years apart, didn't they?
1: Yeah, and uh, it's kind of showing no no progression.
0: But... <laughs> you haven't really learned, it sounds like, from the disaster that was the Wii U.
1: But, okay, he's he's saying exactly the same thing. Yeah, and he hasn't learned it because of the Wii U, because that was years ago, mm-hmm. you know, when the Wii was that popular. And, yes, it's very underpowered, and... I don't know. Even it's kind of the wars of power at the moment. It's kind of back on that. Um, it's like the Xbox. Well, they're upgrading them, aren't
0: they, again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. they're, they're
1: upgrading them again, but they're going to 4K. But it's like the Xbox was kind of losing its edge because it wasn't as powerful as the PS4 or perceived as powerful. And I think it's all about that now. I think it's gone back to the kind of, not the space race, but the power race of consoles.
0: Well, I have read some people using the argument that if if people really cared about power, they'd all be gaming on PCs. But I think there are an element of people that, you know, maybe PC gaming seems a bit too much effort, so they like to stick to consoles. But you really look, and I mean, he he used the argument of the the Wii there, but let's face it, I think the Wii was a fluke.
1: Well, what's Nintendo been? Nintendo's always been casual gaming. It's always
0: been, you know, handhelds, which have all been replaced by phones, I think it has in the last couple of decades, but you look back... Okay, if you discount the Wii and say, really, I mean that that console sold on a gimmick, didn't it? It was motion control. Okay, so if
1: we just went GameCube to Wii U,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, when was the last hit before the Wii? It was a Super Nintendo, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. And that was so, a
0: long time ago, dude. Yeah, yeah. Nintendo have only really had like you know you count the original NES or SNES. Um, you know, the, the N64 wasn't, it was the least popular of that generation, wasn't it? Because, well, I don't remember, the Saturn was kind of down there with it. PlayStation wiped the floor with it, though, anyway. And then you move on to the GameCube, again, PS2 and Xbox one right, the floor they it.
1: haven't had, I'd say the most innovative thing, probably, was Donkey Kong Country. <laughs> that, yeah. that was the change from the uh, kind of playing graphics to the, you know, massive 3D kind of, Pre-rendered graphics, yeah, well, I mean, of the 2D stuff, and that know? was
0: a great, great example of you know their innovation in the early 90s. Because I mean, the Super Nintendo it came out later than the Mega Drive, mm. and it was graphically and you know audio on it was better. We're as totally well.
1: missing out the N64 here. I don't know why. Well, we did mention so. the
0: N64 as well, but you know that I think because it used cartridges, it got the you know the PlayStation wiped the floor with the N64 in terms of sales figures. Yeah. Because people, you know, if you could develop a 600 megabyte game, you'd do that rather than trying to get it down to 7 for the N64. But, I mean, you look before the N64 came out, I think that kind of marked the change in Nintendo's attitude because before that, it was Project Reality, it was Silicon Graphics. They were really trying to push, you know, the technical edge with that console.
1: Yeah, they were. You're completely right, they were. And kind of, I guess it's also because the PlayStation did this big trick of having Sony who were the developers of, you know, all the technology so they could get the DVD player in there cheap. Mm-hmm. They could get, you know, everything in there straight away. And remember that GameCube with the fat DVD player underneath and all of this <laughs> kind of, you know, there's all these little things like rumble packs and stuff to try and get Nintendo back to uh, but <laughs> kind have... of looking... Modern.
0: You probably have got the Game Boy to kind of blame for Nintendo appealing to that really kiddie audience, because that's kind of where that started, I think. But there was that change, I think, after the N64. It happened with the GameCube. You look at that, it looks like a console for 10-year-old kids.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I don't know. It's strange, because I I think also the DS is a massive market and that kind of stuff, but iPad gaming has... Apple has stolen
0: so much of
1: their market share. I'm amazed that
0: the the DS is as popular as it is, to be honest. Now, every kid's got an iPod Touch or an iPad.
1: Yeah, yeah, or even this stuff that we're covering, you know, these kind of little things that you can convert your phone into a gaming platform. I think Nintendo should have been completely
0: on that. That would have been a, a place that they could have dominated. But what makes me sad about this is, by hearing those clips, and I kind of get the impression again that, you know, I might be completely wrong, and I hope I am, But from... It just seems to me like they haven't learned any lessons from the Wii U at all. And the NX is due to repeat it. Or they
1: need a new marketing man, I think. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) But, you know, dude, to be fair, if the NX fails... That probably will be the last Nintendo console.
1: And you know what the thing is as well is that really frustrates me is that the Wii U is good. Yeah. It's, it's nice. Console. You've got one. I've sat there. I've played it and really bloody enjoyed it. It's just not
0: popular because they keep, I don't know what they're doing. They just keep marketing it wrong. Yeah, I think that's the main problem with the, I mean, most people thought the Wii U was an add-on for the Wii.
1: <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, so. that's it because of the name, but it was... It's really good. That's why I recommended on last week's show that everyone buys one, because this could become a rare... As an investment. <laughs> As an investment, yeah.
0: It could be like the Virtual Boy. Yeah, but do you know, yeah. Nintendo is such a historic company, mate. They've been around right for sale. I don't want to see them go the way of Sega and just be, you know, churning out games on phones in five, ten years, but...
1: No, but it seems to me that they're just churning out copies of stuff, so it's always follow-ons, you know, it'll be like a new Mario, yeah. oh, where's the new Donkey Kong, where's the new Mario Kart and the new Zelda. It's just like a pattern that they've got stuck into. And... There's not, like, GoldenEye coming out or something
0: that's, you know, mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, all, all of the third-party devs have left Nintendo in the last couple of generations. Yeah. And I think they're at a very confused place as well because I can't really figure out who they're aiming at. On the one hand, they're aiming at, like, you know, the pre-teen kind of market with these cutesy little franchises mm. in the DS. On the other hand, it seems like they're aiming at kind of late millennials, like kind of guys our age, late 20s to mid-30s, yeah. who, like, you know, want the Mario games and the Zeldas and, and all are
1: still, that. They're still in with the franchises. But
0: they're still churning out these 20, 30-year-old franchises all the time and living on them aren't
1: they half the time it's... yeah and they're not in the vr game at all like absolutely at all, all the companies are jumping on vr and they had the 3d on the ds you yeah. know you could switch the screen that's about as much as i've seen from nintendo
0: watch him bring back the virtual boy now <laughs> that'll
1: be <laughs> it. you know they were the original vr guys were <laughs> not they got
0: burnt ones yeah so, well uh... i actually
1: saw that you could have uh, converted virtual boy games to the um uh htc5 oh really yeah okay. so you can play them without the flicker if you want to get your migraine <laughs> up yeah
0: <laughs> and thank you so much for checking out episode number 26 of the retro Hour. next week's show will be out on friday as always available from mixcloud soundcloud itunes youtube your favorite podcast client and uh, of course do follow us on twitter we have been tweeting away a bit this week yeah
1: yeah and uh our facebook page we've been doing loads of kind of stuff to get people interacting and chatting and yeah. it's good stuff like, oh, what's your favorite ZX Spectrum game? Or show us your first PC. There's been or, some. F- first computer,
0: even. <laughs> fierce debate on there this week, hasn't there, over uh, which systems were best back in the day and yeah, stuff? So yeah. uh, do join us on there. We'll put links on our website, but if you just search for the Retro Hour, you'll find us on there. Now, for the next half an hour, I reckon this is going to be really interesting. We're going to get the inside story on uh, Rebecca that Rebecca Berger Heinemann, including that name.
1: Yeah, and uh, uh, God, the 3DO version of Doom, where they even made a a film a kind of little intro and they film their own Doom
0: (laughs) oh god the 3DO version of Doom that she worked on is uh, famously one of the worst console ports that ever came out we talk
1: talk about everything don't we really really good interview to talk about
0: the 3DO as well because we haven't really covered that so Rebecca's going to speak quite a lot about that and also her uh, 30 year history in the video game industry lots of interesting stories Rebecca Heinemann on the Retro Hour for the next 30 minutes and we'll catch you next Friday To the retro hour podcast rebecca burger heineman
3: <laughs> <laughs> hi everybody
0: now uh, we've got to ask first of all what is it about burgers
3: all right let me give you the short version um back in the 70s and 80s um i when i first started my video game career i really had no money i was flat broke and even when i started programming at boom corporation even in interplay so i was being paid like next to nothing um so To eat, uh, there was a place called Hamburger Stand. It's a little uh, 29-cent hamburger joint where they just slap two buns and a a piece of meat and then call it a burger. Um, I would buy like about 10 or 20 of them at one shot. Then, because they didn't have a refrigerator, I just took it to my desk and I shoved it in the desk drawer. And then I would let them sit there as as they worked through the day. I would reach in, grab a burger, munch on it, and then just put the drawer, forget about it, and then later on... After working a little bit more, I reached down there, grab another one, well eventually, you know, people said, is that unhealthy? And I'm like, I don't care, they're good and whatever. So it just kept going and going. So I said, hey, what you got in your drawers? Uh, you, know, you any good burgers lately? And uh, eventually the name just stuck. And uh, so since then, uh, there have been people in the industry who actually thought my name was just Burger. Uh, <laughs> That's great. But, uh, yeah, but in the end, uh, I still like burgers more I like Red Robin these days or uh, In-N-Out. I, I tend to eat more sushi than anything else. <laughs> at least you have the burgers cooked this time and not just out the drawer, yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, they usually are start cooked. They just uh, get to room temperature. And after you well age them for at least 48 hours, they reach the peak of flavor. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Rebecca, what was your first computer experience? Oh, boy. That would be uh, seeing the. Uh, the AIM-65, I remember seeing that little computer. I bought it mail order, and I put it together, and I just liked playing with it. And then I found a friend of mine who just bought a brand new Apple II. They just came out. So that's like 1977, somewhere around there. And I just fell in love with it. Now Of course, I couldn't afford to buy one, but uh, I visited his house all the time and uh, just played with it. Until eventually, my high school I was going to um, got a TRS-80. Right. So I started playing with it because the teacher didn't know what it was. I mean, they just the school just got some TRS-80s. They handed it to the electronics department and said, okay, teach the kids, then like, teach them what? But then afterwards, I got some money to be able to buy a computer, but it really wasn't that much. And then by just happenstance, there was this um, one of those classified ad newspapers they had called the Penny Saver. I don't know if it's still around, but that was what they were doing in LA at the time. And somebody was selling an Apple II computer for 800 bucks. Uh, and I'm like, oh my God. So I called him up, excitedly rode my bike. Uh, so I went cro- literally across LA Went to this guy's house, gave him $800, like basically every penny I had, and he gave me this Apple II in a box. It turns out that he bought the computer and he had it in a box for like a month and realized he was never really going to use it for whatever purpose. So he sometimes decided to just get rid of it. So because of it, I got myself this brand new Apple II and just getting that thing home on a bicycle that was an adventure <laughs> <laughs> I bet that um, was. it was but it was worth it i got it home i had it on my on my bed and had to wire it up to a tv and so forth but i got the thing up and running got a cassette tape started uh, writing programs on cassettes uh learning how to program it but as as time went on um i used it to help me pirate to charge my 600 cartridges and uh It's what allowed me to be able to play all the Atari games, which then led to me winning those championships.
0: Well, we're going to talk about that, actually, because you won the National Space Invaders Championship in 1980.
3: That's right. It was for Space Invaders for the Atari 2600. I was playing against a friend who had an Atari 2600, and he had all the cartridges, every single one of them. So I designed this reader so I would borrow his cartridges, copy them so I could play them at home. But I would go to his house, we would play slot racers all the time and I kept beating him and for whatever reason he was just a glutton for punishment so he kept inviting me over to beat him again. But I just got so good at it, I started playing the other Atari games, Space Invaders being one of them. Atari announced the Space Invaders tournament. He was convinced I was going to win and I was telling him nope, nope, there's people out there far, far better than me. I had absolutely no self confidence, no self esteem, nothing. But at his insistence, he drove me up to Topanga Canyon Plaza. It's now called Westfield Topanga today, but back then it was Topanga Canyon Plaza. And that's where they held the um, LA regionals. And I had the highest score by doubling the second place score. The second place at 44,000, I had 88,000. And I still remember when I turned to my score, I, my response was, was that good? I mean, did I even place? And they're like, uh. So I won the regional, which then the prize was an all expense paid trip to New York City to play in the nationals. So I then, in November, they flew me out to New York City. They put me up in this really swank hotel. And then on November, I think it was 8th. I can't remember the exact date, but it was November of 1980. We went to the Time Warner building. I think it's called 75 Rockefeller today. They then had me and the other champions from Dallas, San Francisco, New York, and Chicago. And there we were in front of the press and everything, and we battled it out to the death. Only Chicago fell out, uh, but the other people, they, um, we kept going. So they just said, okay, after almost two hours, they said, that's it, high score wins. And they stopped the contest, and I ended up with the highest score. You must have and had an achy what? hand after that, then two hours. Oh God! I as soon as they told me that the contest was over, I said, "I asked the asked the refer, the announcers, like, does this mean we could stop playing?" He says, "Yes, you can." I just raged over and pulled the cartridge right out of the machine. That's it. So I'm done. That's it. I'm over. <laughs> have you ever played Space Invaders on the Atari since? <laughs> after a little while,
0: yes, I did, but there was no space invaders played for a couple of weeks after that <laughs> oh, it must have been a magical time though in the late 70s early 80s when microcomputers were first coming around in video games that first kind of wave of it it must have felt quite special back then did it
3: well at the time it we were just you know programming games like anything else i mean now they look back at it, it says yes it was a magical time um it's you know, of course, you know, when you're there, it's like when I was writing Bards Tale 3, I really didn't have any idea that the game was going to be, you know, uh, as well reviewed or remembered today such as fondly as it was. I was just making the game I wanted to play. Um, so, but back then, it was like, yeah, I'm making Apple II games. I've got all these friends in the Apple II community. We were trading information. We were all learning
0: together just how to just make better software. Well, you did mention this uh, kit that you made to copy Atari cards. How exactly did that work then? Um, because I couldn't afford Atari
3: cartridges, I figured out, okay, there's got to be a way of copying them or something like that. So I went up to a bunch of bulletin boards. And back then, you know, you had your modem, you called up these phone numbers, which then logged into a bulletin board, you entered your account, and then that's where the message boards were. And of course, knowing which BBSs had the forbidden knowledge was kind of like the Elite Hacker Underground. And I was very active in the Elite Hacker Underground. Um, so I had privy in access to most of the, shall we say, forbidden uh, BBS sites. Um, well, with that, several of the sites actually had the pinouts of the Atari 2600 cartridges. But, and other sites had uh, blueprints on how to build an Apple II integer card. So, and it's just a ROM cartridge. Mm -hmm. uh, our ROM card for Apple II. Well, I looked at that and I designed using the integer card as a basis, a ROM emulator card where I just added a write line, put in static memory, wired up the card, plugged into my Apple II. Yes, I can read and write the memory, everything's fine. Added hardware to dual port it so I could hit a register in which the memory was either accessible by the Apple II or it's accessible to this cable, which plugs into a fake cartridge that I soldered in um, some connections to it. And so I made another device which allowed me to plug a cartridge into it so I can read the ROMs. And I went ahead and downloaded the
0: ROMs, put it inside the Apple II, copied it into this thing, turn on the Atari, game ran. <laughs> Well, you did mention the BBS scene and um, obviously the movie War Games came out in 1983. Did you kind of find that that changed the BBS scene much? Did more people want to get into it then?
3: Well, more wannabes wanted to get in. People said, I want to get in the scene, but they had absolutely no idea what they were doing. So the rest of the hackers, we we all just laughed at them. It's even to this day, there are people out there saying, like we call them script kiddies today, where they think, hey, I just downloaded these scripts from the Internet and it does a, you know, BB, a dial de- of service attack on a website. Ooh, I caused the website to go down. I'm leaked. And we all look like, <laughs> if you take down Facebook, then we'll actually give you respect. But uh, <laughs> taking down a simple BBS is child's play. Um, that was back then with the war games. And, of course, some parts of war games um, were like total fiction. we are like, that's not how you hack into a computer. But um, <clears throat> most of the times when you actually hack into a computer, it's so boring. Cause you're just sitting there typing in numbers, typing in hex. It really doesn't make good for an actor trying to explain to an audience, hey, we hack. Instead, it's like all these graphics and pretty things. It's like, no, it's like military computers. They don't even have graphics. They just have just command lines and strings and text menus.
0: <clears throat> you're not zooming down corridors virtually and all that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hell no. <laughs>
1: So, at the time, you were 14 when you were doing this, and you entered the games industry at such a young age. How did you manage to convince
3: people to uh, take you seriously? Um, I lied. Um, Well, taking me seriously was the very fact that I was making Atari cartridges on my own with reverse-engineering See, By the time I entered the the professional programming, I was 17, because I won the championships when I just turned 17. It was like 16, 17 but I'd already been hacking for a couple of years. Once I won the championship, I started writing articles for Electronic Games Magazine, which then made me known to video game companies. Video game companies were contacting Electronic Games Magazine lamenting about how they wanted to do Atari 2600 programming, but nobody would pay, would teach them, and those few programmers that are out there were asking like a million dollars. Well, then Electronic Games Magazine said, Hey, yeah, we know this kid here who happens to know how to program the Atari 2600. You should call her. And sure enough, they called me up and I said, Yeah, I know how to program 2600. This is how you do it. So they hired me right on that phone call. And you pretended you were 18 years old then, did you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They said, How old are you? 18. (laughs) Sure (laughs) enough, I'm legal to work. I'm legal to do this. I mean, I did have a social security number and so forth, but um, I definitely wasn't old enough to, let's say, sign a contract.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How long did you keep that pretence up for then? That
2: was about a year. That was
3: about a
0: year before I hit 18. (laughs) (laughs) Well, obviously, you know, around that time, when we got to about 1983, there was a big um, video game crash in North America. Did that affect you much? Uh, Yeah, because I was... um, I just got a job at Atari, because after Avalon Hill,
3: I came back to the West Coast, because I really didn't care much for the East Coast attitudes in New York um, at the time. This is 1982. Um, So I went ahead and said, hey, you know, Atari, you got a job? I said, sure, you will know, bring you up here. Went to, went there, interviewed, started a job, and then two weeks later, everybody got fired. Everybody. So not only I got fired, but my manager got fired, their manager, I mean, the entire building as far as I knew was fired. So in that case, I was just putting a deposit down on an apartment. So I just told the apartment building, you know the apartment I was going to take? I changed my mind. And then I went back to the Motel 6 I was staying at, got packed up my things, packed up my little pickup truck, and just drove home. But shortly thereafter, I got a job at Boom Corporation, and uh, that's what led me to Interplay. So uh, how did you kind of come up with the idea of Interplay
1: and co-found it?
3: Uh... Well, I didn't come up with the idea. It was kind of more like it was thrown on us. So you see... We were all working at Boone Corporation, making VIC-20 games and so forth. Uh, Brian Fargo had sold his company called Sabre Software to Boone Corporation. That's how he ended up at Boone. Um, The rest of us, Jay Patel, Troy, we just were working there. And then one day Mike Boone says, hey, um, I don't want to make video games anymore. I want to do whiteboards or sell ice cream. At the time, first it was ice cream at the swap meets or something. Anyways, he closed down the company. So we were all fired. And we're like, so what are we going to do? And we're like, why do we form a company? And it's like, okay, because we're all fired. (laughs) And at that point, um, Brian went ahead and got some investment capital uh, from a guy named Chris Wells. And with that, we then created Interplay. And um, I started working on the original games, whereas Jay and Troy started doing some games for a contract for, that was raised extra money while I made the original games so that I did Mindshadow Tracer Sanction, which was what, our first Interplay games were which were sold to Activision and then we just kept parlaying and I just kept doing whatever projects we needed to keep bringing in money in the company in order for us to survive long enough to become a company. It took like three years before we were actually out of the woods but for the first three years it was literally like yeah at any moment if anybody screws up and doesn't
0: deliver on their um, milestones we're out of money. <laughs> what was the setup of Interplay like then? I mean was it a really small team originally? It was only four people. Yeah. Uh, we got one
3: person shortly after, a guy named Dave Lowry, who was our artist, because Jay, Troy, and I were all programmers. Brian was an Applesoft programmer, um, but he ended up becoming more of, like, the CEO kind of thing. So he was doing biz dev. He was trying to get the contracts in, and we were the ones who actually did all the work. One of the most unique games
1: was Task Times in Tone Town. And, yeah. Uh, it was it was a real strange kind of you were you in a bit of a experimental mindset when you were uh,
3: writing that well the thing was that the the main story was created by mike and muffy berlin what was going on is that what we want to do in interplay is we want to see if we can get some infocom talent to write a story for us and um mike and muffy berlin were actually thinking because they did I, for, I forgot which infocom games they did uh because Mike Berlin did a couple of Infocom text adventures. Mm-hmm. And he came up with this idea of basically, you know, the idea of a drug trip. And we were also having visits from Timothy Leary for Neuromancer. That's another story. <laughs> um, but and there was also some people at her play were kind of using drug. I never was in that scene. But the thing was is that... Um, they came with the concept, and at that point I said, okay, so we worked together, me, Mike, Buff- Muffy, we came with all this plot, and I figured out all the, the entire game, and then um, scripted it together, and I wrote the engine, and wrote all the tools and everything, and got the game out there. And the thing, of course, with the uh, task times in Tone Town was the fact that it was my first real MIDI-based music driver that I did, because like on the t- 2GS version, it had a soundtrack, people were going like, holy shit, Music like that coming out of a home computer, and that was uh, 1985 86
1: when I did that. So, were you into the kind of new wave and cyberpunk scene at the time at all? Or?
3: Oh, yeah, because uh, I also did Neuromancer for oh, Interplay, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. the Apple II version of Neuromancer. And uh, were you playing
1: MUDs or BBS games at all?
3: Uh, I did for a short while, but I really wasn't into it. I mean, the only real um multi-user dungeon i was playing was like eamon or aemon i can't really remember how it's pronounced it was an apple II text adventure game system that lets you pick your adventure and go from adventure to adventure adventure in a text adventure scene and i like playing with that but yeah. um other than that um i didn't really do much of the muds
1: um i, I was guessing because of bard's tail maybe uh, a lot of D and D
3: might have been yep. involved but well, I did play a lot of D&D. Um, I loved playing, you know, went to a friend's house every now and then. And so Occasionally I was the DM, but most of the time I was taking my character and playing. But uh, really it got me into the computer RPGs was Wizardry. Because I mean, really was a flat, rip ripoff of Wizardry. We just said, hey, you know, here's Wizardry. How can we make it better? Well, first, don't write it in Pascal. Write it in Assembly. Um, and then add the Graphics, I came up with all those graphic algorithms for the four stage animations and stuff like that. Um, and then when I took over the project for the two GS versions and then Bard's Tale 3, I completely rewrote everything that was in the engine to be essentially a engine that was designed specifically to make Bard's Tale games. And it's one reason why Bard's Tale 3 was so huge is because it has a scripting engine in there that allows me to have, gosh, so many different scenarios inside of just a very small amount of memory.
1: Because uh, I saw that you also improved the engine for Dragon Wars, which was meant to be oh. the Bard's
3: Tale, wasn't it? Yeah, it was meant to be Bard's Tale Four, and actually, I created that entire game from scratch. Uh, that was um, I took everything I learned from Bard's Tale and I just started over. So, okay, I can write events in a scripting language. I thought, hey, why don't I write the entire game in a scripting language? So I created a very simple scripting language that's designed really to make, adventure, you know, ish games. And I wrote the game in that language. So all I had to do to port the game was just port the interpreter. Kind of like uh, you have that scrum system that LucasArts uses to do a Maniac Mansion. Monkey Island and so, those, yeah. Yeah, all they did was just port the interpreter to other platforms and that's how they got the game from machine to machine. I did that very same thing with Dragon Wars.
1: I guess that's kind of like Lua as well at the moment. It,
3: it yeah, it, it's kind of like that. Yep. Uh, but unfortunately for me, is after we did uh, Dragon Wars, a the advertising really wasn't there, so it didn't get. It didn't sell as well as Bart's Tale Three. It did get it. It did sell really well. It just wasn't as popular. And for whatever reason, um, Brian Interplay had this thing about multimedia cinematics and had this idea to do this. Bard's Tale-ish game using live actors, and the game was going to be called Stonekeep. And I didn't really think that that's where we should have gone. And of course, I got proven right because of the fact that they would spent five years working on the game before they finally shipped it, where I only spent never, I never spent more than one year writing one of these games. So, and I did them by myself. They had a huge team to do theirs.
1: Well, do you, do you think Dragon Wars would have been more successful if it had the Bard's Tale name on the franchise rather than Dragon Wars, oh. which has no dragons
3: involved? You know? Yeah, that's the story. I put dragons in. There. there are dragons, but they're more of an afterthought. It would have easily sold three to four times more copies. That's There's absolutely zero doubt in my mind it would have sold that many more. Uh, but it didn't because it was, uh, you know, instead of being called uh, Bard's Tale 4, um... It
0: was called um, Dragon Wars. One of my favorite games that um, Interplay did. Did you have any involvement in battle chess? Yep, I did. I did some of the ports and I did a lot of the tools for the first Amiga game. What did you um, think of that as a concept then? Because it was very unique. I remember when I first saw that game. Even as a kid that wasn't really that into chess, that game, I could just spend hours and hours on it. Especially the, the linking up two Amigas. I'd do it that way with my brother. And mm-hmm. um, just as little animations, I think every kid loved that game around that time. Oh, the idea? We ripped it off from the movie Future World. If you've ever saw
3: the movie Future World, it was like in 1984, 85, I can't remember exactly the year, but there was a scene in the movie in which you had some people in the space station and they were looking they were sitting at a table and inside the table was a hologram of a live action chessboard. And they had the pieces played and they move and the rook pulled out a bow and arrow and shot somebody. A knight came with a sword and hit the pawn. And that's where the idea came from. We said, hey, wouldn't that be cool if we actually could make a game like that, where the chess pieces kill each other? Um, So we then brainstormed some ideas, and then it came with the idea of, why don't we just make it funny, make it uh, really cute, which had the Monty Python references. We had, you know, we just let the artist just figure out an animation. Say, okay, we need pawn takes pawn. What do we do? And the, there was no storyboarding. The artist just simply said, hey, you know, we have the two pieces here, draw me all the frames of the animation. And they just simply did it pixel by pixel using Golex Paint and um, did all the frames. We created a tool that figured out all the diffs and that was stored. I and mean, it's really heavily compressed, um, but it played it back. What's hilarious was that when we were designing Battle Chess, we thought that that was going to be like the B side product we were putting all of our efforts into Neuromancer because at the time, Neuromancer was supposed to become a feature film starring uh, Mel Gibson and Ridley Scott was supposed to direct and they were trying to raise the funds to do this film. So we were actually going to do a game based on the film Neuromancer. Unfortunately for us was as we were halfway through the development of the game, the funding fell apart for the film so, but we were still under contract to make the game. So, we ended up having to say, based on the book, Neuromancer, blah, blah, blah. So, when the game shipped, we thought that Neuromancer was going to just sell millions of copies because, you know, based on the movie. But, and then Battle Chess was only going to sell 50,000 maybe at tops because it was such, you know, it's a chess game. Who's, you know, who really wants to play a chess game? You know, it's cute. we are going to sell out more copies. That's it. We had no idea that Battle Chess was going to take off uh, the way it did. It's amazing how
1: popular it was here. When I was a kid, you know, a chess game with cute little characters, you would not think that that would become a massive success, but yeah.
0: You'd want to play just to see the animations, though,
3: wouldn't you? Yeah,
1: just to see the killing.
3: (laughs) Yeah, well, that was it. We actually, during its playtesting, that's what everybody wanted. They just want to see the pieces killed, so we actually put in the, the chessboard editor Specifically, so people can make moves, you know, place the pieces so they could then force it to make a move to see the next animation.
0: Well, you mentioned the Commodore Amiga in there, which I know wasn't a massive platform in the States, but it was really big over here in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think of that machine then and working on it? I loved and hated it at the same time. Uh, Because,
3: you know, Guru Meditation era was my, you know, my arch nemesis because I saw that so many times. (laughs) Um, You know, I love programming 68,000, you know, because at the time I was doing some stuff on the Macintosh, the original uh, 68K Mac. But the Amiga was just, I love the blitter. I love, you know, I just wishing that that kind of hardware was available on other personal computers, messing around with it. But the very fact that, you know, you had the it was constantly going to the floppy disks. The hard drive support was at the time, you know nowadays it's a lot better. Back then, the hard drive support was a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, network support was not so hot either, but you know you developed it on the floppy drives, and it was just a pain in the butt to do software development on the Amiga for us. But it was the best video hardware that you can get for a home computer and the idea of the blitter and of course my favorite things was the being able to grab the top of the screen and pull it down so you could see the um, thing it's called the workbench I'm trying to remember yeah yeah um directly underneath it that's like okay that's actually
0: kind of cool we yeah. got it. the mac was black and white back then wasn't it and didn't have oh yeah mac was like the mega kick spot
3: um
0: so you did um, the apple 2 gs and the uh, super nintendo versions of one of my all time favorite games um out of this world yes. or is this known here in the uk another world do you remember the first time you saw the original version of that then? Was it something like completely different to what you'd seen before?
3: Oh, yeah. When we first saw the game, it was a, a demo that Eric Chahi showed us on the Amiga. And it was like amazing because it was essentially a side-scrolling platformer, but done totally with polygon graphics, which was unheard of. And, you know, and, and the game, the music and the sound, everything about it was just like amazing. And, of course, was what led uh, Interplay to license it for American distribution. And then uh, Eric at first was kind of hesitant to give us a source code, but then later on I talked him into it and I got the source to it. So then I started helping him with the ports and so forth. But uh, I still remember that when I looked at the source and realized, oh, so you're really only doing vector graphics, but here's all these cheats you're doing says, with these cheats, I could probably get it on even lower end systems. And that's when Ivan said, you know what? I could actually probably get this game running on Apple 2GS. And of course, I was told by pretty much everyone saying, this game could never run on the 2GS. And I said, sure enough. So I hand uh, translated the 68000 code to the equivalent 65816. And sure enough, I had it running on a
0: 2GS. Is it true that you you didn't use like the um Super FX chip on the SNES port or anything like that? You you just did it all Oh yeah. yeah? There's no super anybody with a ROM emulator can tell you right
3: now they can back me up. It's on a slow ROM with no additional hardware. I did that all
0: with software rendering. Well, moving on from the uh, Super Nintendo era, after that it was a pretty strange time in gaming. You kind of had that, you know, pre-PlayStation, um, after the 16-bit machines, and stuff like the Jaguar 3DO Saturn. Um, you obviously did some work on the 3DO. What did you think of that system first time you saw it? It was a love-hate
3: relationship. It's the, uh, the thing with the, th- uh, the 3DO was one. The development system was a Mac. You could not develop on the um, 3DO unless you were using a Mac, period which was at that time so unheard of because everybody then was using um, PCs. So I remember a lot of companies out there were really pissed off that if you wanted to develop on the 3DO in addition to you know spending a truckload of money on the 3DO to um, get licensing and so forth, you had to go out and buy Mac hardware, which was expensive, still is, Comparatively speaking, you had to buy this, um, you had to get fiber networking because you couldn't use Ethernet at the time, because back then it was only 10 base T, yeah. um, so you had to use something bigger, and then you had to have these high-end workstations to compress video, it just goes on and on and on and on about all this expense. Granted, I was already familiar with MPW, so I was able to transition over to programming the um, 3DO, and... I did start just churning out games on the 3DO like crazy, I did uh, Shadow in Kingdoms of Far Reaches, Casper the Friendly Ghost, Battle Chess, uh, Out of This World, Wolfenstein 3D, and Doom. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you've often said in the past that you're know you you're not happy with your version of Doom on the 3DO. What, what went wrong with that then? Everything. Um, every possible thing. I even did a
3: complete podcast of my own on my Burger Becky YouTube channel, it lasts for an hour. But in a nutshell, after I'd done Wolfenstein 3D for the 3DO, which runs at 60 frames per second, it's very responsive, it's like a perfect port. Oh, it's the, the best, console was... port of...
0: best console port of Wolfenstein I've ever played on the 3DO.
3: Yep, and that is what got 3DO to get a hold of me, saying, you know it's the code. It says, yes, I do. You know how to optimize the code. Yes, I do. I've already got eight games in my um, repertoire. It says. Can you help us with this publisher who wants to get DOOM? I then get in contact with Arkadier Interactive and they told me flat out, the game was 90% complete. All I need to do was finish the game for them, get it up, you know, optimize it, which is like, no problem. 10 weeks to go to optimize a game is pretty much done. No problem. Give me the source. Give me the source. Where's the source? You don't have the source, do you? It's like, no. So I then, in a panic, called my friends at id, who then, out of pity, send me a copy of uh, the Jaguar Doom source. And then from that, at least I have the levels already redone to low memory and so forth. So it will actually fit on a console. At this point, says, okay, this is a good starting point. Started working on it to get it to build on the 3DO compilers, got a lot of things fixed on it. And then that's when I come to find out that the publisher never had a copy of the game ever. They were lying to me. And then it turns out they were lying to themselves. They had honestly believed to port a game from one machine to another you just compile the code. That was it. It's like saying, oh, see this Mac game? I'm gonna grab the C++ code, put it on an Amiga compiler, and now I've got an Amiga version. They really believe that's how easy it was. It must have been a miracle. It is actually a miracle that that game came out at all then. A uh, lot of sleepless nights. I literally lived at my desk for the last uh, six or seven weeks. And I threatened to quit that project several times. I said, that's it, I'm done. And then my friends at 3DO just begged me to stay on the project, mostly because up in the months leading to that moment, this company, Arc Data, was going everywhere, doing a press tour saying how this new version of Doom's gonna be the best Doom ever, it has new levels, it has new weapons, it has new this, it's gonna, you know, and everybody was hyped up about it. They wanted Doom on the 3DO. So if Doom was to not ship, it would make 3DO look bad because everybody was expecting this game. So they were kind of caught between a rock and a hard place here because of this renegade publisher lying to everybody about the capabilities of the Doom game when the reality was not even close to what they had. So I just told the guys at 3DO, look, all I can deliver is a port of the Jaguar version. That's all I'm going to do. But I could not port the MIDI music driver that they did on the PC version to the 3DO in the time frame. By the greatest stroke of luck, the guy who runs Arc Data Interactive also plays in his own little rock band. So I gave him tapes of the music played of all the songs in Doom, and then he and his band made the soundtrack that was played in Doom for 3DO. Oh, wow. Because on the 3DO, to play a CD audio, it's trivial, it's like three lines of code. So I said, great, I could, you know, give me the MP3s, the equivalents, and I'll put the on the disc, I'll just put, add the three lines of code. There's my music for the game.
1: Well, I saw that you'd posted some uh, photos of uh, old FMV intro mm-hmm. that they were doing for that. <laughs> what happened there?
3: Well, you see, the guys at Art Data Interactive actually came up with some movie story and so forth. So they want to put in interactive cutscenes into Doom. They never bothered to ask me about where did these cut scenes go in the game. So they just independently made their own cut scenes, they filmed them, they had some um, Hollywood actors, not really like A-grades, like uh, stunt people or, or wannabe actors who wanted to make a, get a break in the industry, but they were still never the best actors. And they filmed these scenes, they even had that demon costume made, because they understand there was even a I'm oh, sorry, an E3 or a CES, I can't remember which, in which Art Data had a booth, and they had a guy walking around in that Doom, that Demon costume, advertising 3DO Doom, even though they didn't even have a prototype there. I never got a copy of all that video because I said, hey, um, because they asked me, we got these new weapons and new ideas for levels, so they gave me some sketches for levels, you know, like a, a hand-drawn a piece of paper. It says, can you put this in the game in an hour? I'd be like no. Hey, I got this drawing of a new weapon. Can you put that in the game? Give me a week or two. What? Can't you just put the JPEG in the game and it's a new weapon? Oh <laughs> you really don't understand how video games work.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I've seen you know the the stills and that of that those um <laughs> the Doom footage. It looks a bit like a bad B movie from what I've seen. It's, uh... Oh, trust me. Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen all the footage. I've seen little things. That
3: I've all now what I did is I took all the stills that I was able to find from my archives and I post up on my Twitter. That's what's been going around on the uh, internet. Yeah because um, I posted them on Twitter. But I found a bunch of pictures. I post them one by one just saying, this is what the full motion video would have looked like because those are actual stills from the production. I mean, the, the green screen, they had the guy and the demon, they had one actor on a table with the uh, chicken guts covered with karo syrup sitting on his butt because the scene was supposed to be him like eating the guy while the hero sees him and they're supposed to shoot him. But it's like I was asking, where do you expect me to put this full motion video in the game because it has no connection whatsoever with the levels and Doom doesn't have full motion video. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that FMV hasn't aged well from that era, has it? Uh, no, no. I mean, if you look at any of the full motion video from any of the video games back in that particular era, they're pretty laughably bad. But of course, at that time, they were cutting edge. Were you surprised when the 3DO failed? No, I was not surprised whatsoever. Um, In fact... When the 3DO was in its heyday, even then I was predicting it was gonna fail miserably unless they had a good Hail Mary. The, the biggest problem with the 3DO, and I recognize this from the get-go, was they were trying to do the business model of VHS cassette players in the video game realm. On paper, this sounds great. VHS is the technology behind the video VHS cassette, video cassette. There's a consortium that licenses those patents to people who make the tapes, and people who make the players. So every time you buy a VHS player, a check is written to the VHS consortium. Every time a blank video cassette is made, a check is written to the VHS consortium. So they go ahead and just make sure everybody uh, follows their standards, but they get the checks from everybody. (laughs) Trip Hawkins had the idea, why don't I make a video game platform with that same concept? I make the platform and the programming tools. Then everybody who makes software writes a check to 3DO. Everybody who makes a player writes a check to 3DO. 3DO itself does not make consoles. Well, the idea is sound except for one problem in the video game world. Video game manufacturers like Sony, Nintendo, nowadays Microsoft, they don't make money selling consoles. They sell those consoles either at cost or below cost. They get you on the on the video games or nowadays subscriptions to Xbox Live or other value add services. That's where they make their money. Yeah. They don't make money on selling the uh, consoles. That means then in the 3DO world, you have people like Panasonic, Massachusetts, uh, Samsung. They put their consoles out at seven ninety nine, dollars so they can make a profit. But then you have Sony putting out their PlayStation for two ninety nine. Which one do you think you're going to buy?
0: Not a hard choice,
3: is it? <laughs> Not a hard choice at all. So, and $7.99 is a frightfully expect high price to pay for a console. So it didn't take very long for people just to not buy the video game console, 3DO. And sadly, with any console, for us to make money, we can only sell at best to 10% of the install base. So if there's only 250,000 3DOs sold, the most number of copies we can hope to sell is 25,000 copies of the game. Like Wolf 3D, we sold 10,000 copies, which for the 3D is kind of respectable. We had, you know, we, we did that port for a very minuscule budget. So even though we only sold 10,000 copies, Interplay made a profit because we did the port at such a low price. Um, but for something like Doom where they wanted, they spent, they didn't spend one penny yet on development just to get the rights. I think it was like a quarter million. And then they spent us some money, which was we did it for a decent price, but nevertheless, you know, added to that number. If you could only sell 10,000 units at, you know, their wholesales, 30 bucks, they're already at a loss. So, and, but then again, you know, everybody there was, you know, like, EA was spending millions of dollars per title, so when you know when you spend a million dollars on a title um, and you only sell 10,000 units, well, it kind of sours you to the platform.
1: So did you see uh, much work or anything on the uh, supposed successor, the
3: M2? Oh yeah, I saw the M2, I saw the M2 prototype, it was a really, really nice machine. Um, but at the same time, they did the same thing that caused uh, Osborne to get screwed over, which was when the 3DO was starting to lag in sales, they went and said, well, we got the M2 coming out. It's coming out in a little while. So when that announcement came out, everybody stopped buying 3DO, saying, well, why would I want to buy a 3DO when the M2's coming out? Kind of like the Osborne, where they started advertising the new Osborne coming out. So everybody stopped buying the current Osborne, which meant that now the company has no more money, so they couldn't actually have the money to get the new Osborne out.
1: So uh, you also moved on and were working for microsoft with the connect later on um yeah are you kind of amazed at the different uses that the connects had, like 3d scanning sign language translation and you know all these kind of innovative things people are doing with it
3: oh i am always i mean when we first came up well i was added onto the connect when it was already well in the process my job was to just optimize it make it better and and uh cut the costs on it but the um The thing about the Kinect was when we were seeing this, it was just a brand new input device. Uh, People at Microsoft Research were already doing weird things and we're just sitting there going like, we have really no idea what this is gonna do. But once we shipped it, um, the first thing that came out of uh, the hacker community was like, when can we get an SDK to hook this thing up to Windows? Because we didn't really, know, we had it internally for testing. Mm -hmm but we never intended on releasing it because we didn't think anybody would want it on a PC. But then, once we saw the demand that people wanted to buy a Kinect just so they could have the PC to do mad science, that's when we said, okay, we'll just fix up the SDK that we use internally, release it to the wild, and just hold our breath, hoping that we didn't make a big mistake. But since then, I'm still amazed, even to this day, what people are using Kinect-like technology for. I mean. I saw one person use it to make a wheelchair automatically walk around, so a person could just simply, a handicap person could just tell the thing, "Take me to the kitchen," and it will navigate you to the kitchen. Another one is that they, I saw this one where a guy was wearing this hat which had a connect on it, and it made sounds that effectively this blind person can now walk outside because it was making little tones letting him know where obstacles were. Oh, right. So fact it was a seeing eye
0: dog. That's crazy. Isn't At, it? It's crazy. And I'm like, well done, well done. <laughs> what well, I was going to say about the Connect. I mean, you kind of think, obviously Microsoft developed a new Connect for the um, the Xbox One. Do you, do you kind of feel they've lost a bit of confidence in Connect now that they're not bundling it with all the Xbox One units? Well, it's just, just one where that the Xbox, the Connect is a lot of money.
3: It costs money to bundle it with the Xbox. And unfortunately, Sony doesn't have that burden. So the, they were having a problem in which you were selling an Xbox One for, let's say, I'm going to pull a number, 349. The PlayStation 4 pl- sells for $299. Well, if Microsoft just got rid of the Kinect, they can easily sell it for $299. And they did find that only a small percentage of people use the Kinect. Uh, most people just play Call of Duty or, or you know, Uncharted, which is just a joypad. So they thought, you know what, let's just unbundle the Kinect, sell the, the Xbox One at the same price as the PS4 so at least we get more people to buy Xbox Ones and then they can go ahead and buy the Kinect later if they actually want to use it. But for those people who use the Kinect, they love it. And also don't forget, the Kinect does require you to have a living space where you have room to actually stand. Not everybody's living room has that. That's it. Um, As a final question,
1: um, what advice would you give someone who wants to become a professional, um,
3: successful programmer? To be a successful programmer, it's one, always challenge yourself and always keep learning. Like, here it is, I'm a 30-year veteran in the computer game industry. And yet, I am now cracking open a book on advanced hardware, on 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 the newest uh, graphics chips. I'm having to learn how they're doing that, how to do the microcoding and so forth. You never rest on your laurels. There is no such thing as the moment I hear a programmer says, "Oh, I already know everything. Or, I don't have to learn that." I say, "You're not a programmer. I want to hire." Because the moment you say that, that means you're now locked in the past. Maybe it might work for embedded systems or working on some bank's computer, which is never going to change for 20 years. Then fine, you can go to work at Citibank. But if you want to work at a video game company, you need to constantly evolve, constantly challenge yourself, constantly learn, attend the hacker HackerFest, uh, do mods, um, read all the white papers, go to SIGGRAPH, go to GDC, listen to the talks, see what other people are doing and learn from it because there's just so much to learn. And here it is. I, I'm at supposedly at the top of my game. No, I'm
0: not. I'm still climbing up. I haven't reached my peak yet. Well, Rebecca, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. Um, Thank you very much for having me on. No problem. People want to find out more about what you're up to. I you're quite active on YouTube as well. Where would people go to?
3: Okay. On... on Twitter and YouTube go to Burger Becky, those are my channels. Uh, just follow me on Twitter. Um I'm also my company's old school, O-L-D-E-S-K-U-U-L dot com. That's where you can see, yeah, you know, keep on our company what's going on. We also have a Twitter page, old school, as well as on Facebook. Um, so, just keep tabs on that, see what horrible things are up to. <laughs> you still got an ICQ as well, I noticed, on your website. Um, I actually still do have ICQ. <laughs> no. I almost never use it. Um, generally, I'm on Skype. Skype or Facebook Messenger. Those are the places where people get to hold of me. But if you really want to chat with me every now and then, just Skype. And again, it's Burger
0: Becky. Gee, original. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rebecca, thank you so much. It's been amazing talking to you. It's been really it's good. It was amazing talking to
3: you. Take care.